Thank you, Stan, Lauren, our, our band. Let's get our Bibles and let's uh, turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, and we are continuing in our series called We Shall Prevail. And we're working our way through this, uh, this great book, uh, this transitional book in the New Testament. And this morning, uh, I'm going to be talking to you about faith that does not say, faith that does not say. Before we uh, begin, let's, let's go to the Lord and let's ask his blessing upon this time. Our Father, we humble ourselves before you. You are our great creator and sustainer. You not only give life, but, Lord, you give us abundant life. You give us eternal life. We're so grateful for that incredible gift. But, Father, as we reflect upon our own lives this morning, as we look at your word, we pray that your spirit would work in our minds and our hearts to show us how it applies to us and what it is that we need to do in response to you. And so, Lord, I I pray that you would direct my thinking and my speaking as well as our hearing. And, uh, Father, we we trust in what you will do today, and it will bring glory and honor to you. And we ask it now humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most fearful realities in all of Scripture is that there are some who think they are saved, but in reality are eternally lost. Jesus says in Matthew seven twenty one, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. And there, there are many people who think that they are on the narrow way to heaven, but who are in reality on the broad road to destruction. And they will one day hear the one that they call Lord say the most terrifying words that a human being can hear. I never knew you. Depart from me. To their horror, they will discover too late that there is an entrance to hell that is disguised as the gates of heaven. James asked the question, he says, if if a person says that they have faith, but there's no outward evidence, can that faith save him? Well, the answer is no. Because without outward evidence, that faith, he says, is dead. You see, there is a faith that does not save. And And wherever the gospel is preached, uh, it inevitably produces true saving faith, but also false or or false faith. In in the parable of the soils, Jesus says that the the seed of the word is sown on the the good soil and on the bad soil. And and when when that word is sown... There will inevitably be plants that spring up and look 
for a while as though they're genuine. But those plants fail to ever produce the fruit of true salvation and repentance. Whereas the seed that's sown on the good ground, it produces an abundant harvest. You see, there is a faith that does not save. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives us a picture of true faith and false faith existing together. And he says there in Matthew 13 and verse 24, he says, The kingdom of heaven may be be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. See, now tares are plants that look very similar to wheat plants. That is, until the fruit or the grain is born, and then it becomes evident that it's not wheat. And Jesus continues there in verse 20, and he says, but he said, excuse me, uh, the, the slaves, they ask uh, the landowner, do you want me, do you want us to go out into the field and pull up those tares? And here's what Jesus says, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Now look at this, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. And Jesus explained them the meaning of this parable very carefully to his disciples. And he says there in verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. And the field is the world. And the one who, uh, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. You see, wherever God sows his true believers, Satan sows his counterfeits. That's the way it always is. And he says in verse 40, So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." You see, friend, there is a faith that does not save. And the Son of Man is going to come and he is going to gather out of his kingdom all those who are counterfeit and he is going to say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. And he is going to cast them into eternal hell. You see, it's absolutely imperative that we understand the difference between true saving faith and a faith that does not save. And this whole matter of saving faith and non-saving faith is aptly illustrated for us here in the eighth chapter of the book of Acts. And 
we have here in in bold contrast the distinction between saving faith and non-saving faith. We're going to meet two people whom the Bible says each believed. But one of them named Simon and the other is identified as uh, the uh, simply as an Ethiopian eunuch. Each of them it says believed. But one of them has a faith that does not save and one of them has a faith that really does save. And the main character in the book of Acts is a man named Philip. Now we we've already met him in Acts uh, chapter 6 where he was among the seven men full of uh, full of the Holy Spirit, of good reputation, that the church chose to put in charge of the distribution of the food to the widows. But, but by this time, Philip has become a, a powerful preacher and, and, and an evangelist. And uh, he is preaching the gospel. And it says in, in verse 4 that because of the persecution that, that erupted in the church in Jerusalem, that now the church has scattered. And wherever they've gone, they are preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and, and persecution, you see, does to the church what the wind does to seed. It, it scatters it, and it produces a greater harvest. Verse 5 tells us, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip, and as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. So Philip is preaching Christ to them, and Samaria experiences a great spiritual awakening under the gospel preaching of this evangelist named Philip. And into the life of Philip come these two people, a man named Simon the magician and a man called the Ethiopian eunuch. And the, the Ethiopian is an example of someone with saving faith. We're going to look at him next week. But Simon is a picture of a person who has a faith that does not save. And I'll tell you, he illustrates the difficulty of telling the wheat from the tares. See, because initially it says that he believed and that he was baptized and that he continued on with Philip. But eventually his true nature is revealed. And as we look at the life of Simon, he shows us the nature of a faith that does not save. And so we, as we look at his life, we see four characteristics of faith that does not save. First, faith that does not save is characterized by an egotistical view of self. It has this egotistical view of self. Look, look at verse 9. He says, Now there was a man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astounding the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And from uh, verse 10, and, and they all from smallest to greatest were giving attention to him saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Now, now, Simon was obviously an egotistical person. He had a high view of himself. And it says in verse 9 that he was claiming to be someone great. Now, the verb tense there tells us that this was 
This was something that he was continually doing. It was a, it was a, a habitual in his life. He was constantly saying, I am someone great. And, and you know, uh, he, Simon would, wasn't much different from many of the magicians and the, and the, and, you know, and the, and the performers of our day. Uh, you know, they have their, their signs, you know, their posters that say, you know, the great, Keller the Great, or Carter the Great, Houdini, the Mystifier, all these things. If, if uh, Simon lived today, he'd probably have a poster that looks something like this. You know, Simon the Great, the great power of God, you know? And it says that, that, that he, was a, he was literally astonishing the people with his, with his practice of magic. Now, some, some versions have the word sorcery in place of magic. And that's a good translation because, you see, Philip or, uh, Simon was, was not just a magician in the sense of doing card tricks or illusions. He was neck deep in the occult. He was into uh, black magic. Uh, he was, this, was, this was sorcery. And he is doing what he is doing by demonic power. He was involved in things like astrology, soothsaying, divination, you know, telling the future, uh, necromancy. That's where you call up, call spirits of the dead back and get information from them. Uh, and, and he dealt in pagan practices such as incantations charms and enchantments black magic attempts to produce results through curses spells and and voodoo that's where you destroy a, a replica of your enemy and and bring pain upon them through that way and the magician you see tries to control the spirit which are actually demons with and cause them to, to work for him and accomplish his will. That's what he's trying to do. So he's trying to get these spirits or demons to do what he wants them to do. And you accomplish that through the practice of occult practices. They're secret. Now, nobody else knows about them. They're very tightly held. But there are certain uh, words and certain actions and certain potions that you mix up and you accomplish the manipulation of spirits for your own purpose. But you see, this sorcerer believed that he was manipulating the spirits for his own purposes, but in reality, Satan was manipulating the manipulator. Satan was using him. Satan had put him here in this place of Samaria, and he was using him to hold the people captive and to deceive them. And through his practice of the occult, Simon had deceived the people into thinking that he was called the great power of God. You know, that title tells us that the uh, people of Samaria had begun to buy into the fa- a false uh, teaching that had begun to develop at that time called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism simply means that you have secret knowledge that nobody else has. That secret knowledge allows you access to the spirits. It allows you not only to commune with the spirit, but it actually allows you to have power and it allows you to be like one of the gods. In fact, Simon claimed to be one of the gods. He was claiming to be what we would call today an aeon. 
a little God, an angelic being. He presented himself in a positive way as a representative of God, but in reality, he was a representative of Satan. And Satan was using him to counterfeit the power of God. Now, he applied his trade with great success. In fact, you know, Justin Martyr, one of the church uh, fathers, said that uh, Simon was famous even in Rome. And they erected a statue there for Simon with the subscription, Simon, Holy God. Can you imagine that? How much, how much more pride could a person have in their life than an accolade like that? Incredible. And you see, if you think you're someone great, if you think you're an elevated being who has connections with the deities, then and you begin to read your own press clippings and you start looking at your own poster and you start thinking that you're really this something... And then you compound that with all the things that people are saying about you. This, you know, you kind of get this, uh, this, this mentality in, in your thinking that really, I really am something. And here was, was Simon. Very egotistical. And you see, when you have that thing, that way of thinking, there is no way that you can ever come to the place of salvation where you can humble yourself and submit yourself to God. And Simon is a classic example of people who see themselves in an elevated way because of what they have accomplished through their, through their intellect or through their, their skills or their talents or their abilities or, or, or just even maybe their own particular circumstances and hard work. But they see themselves in an elevated way as something beyond the average person, as someone great. And, you know, they have this celebrity status in their own minds. But, you know, that's so dangerous. Because, friend, let me tell you, pride robs your heart of the possibility of genuine brokenness and and repentance and humility that is necessary for salvation. You must have that. Pride robs us of of a sense of our guilt. Pride robs us of our own sense of wretchedness and lowliness, our own sinfulness. Pride robs us of our our sense of need for salvation. I mean, isn't that what we see in our culture today? We see a people that have no sense of their lowliness, their wretchedness. Their sinfulness. They have no, seem to have no guilt, no sense of judgment coming. On the contrary, we find people who, who believe that they are good people. Think about it, good people who have no need of God. They don't need God. We're nice, good people. In fact, we're not only good, we're great. We're number one, baby. We're on top. You know, a a recent Gallup poll revealed that 69% of adults say that self-esteem is the single most important motivation for hard work and success. Why is that so important? Because 
it's, it's marketed to us, see, as the solution to whatever ails you. Uh, the, our problem, they would say, is that we all think too little of ourselves. We think too little of, our, of ourselves. And, and the basic belief behind self-esteem is that if you can make people feel better about themselves, then they will be better people. So that's why there's this, this great uh, need, it seems, in, in so many people today to try to build up their children, to tell them that they are great, that everything that they do is incredible, and that um, no matter you know what kind of picture you paint, well, that ought to be in the museum. No matter how you play basketball, well, you're, you're the Michael Jordan of the world. You know, it's whatever it is. No matter how you sing or play, oh, man, you're, you're, you should be in the, in the Coliseum. You see, what we do is, is we, we want to build them up because we want them to obtain all of their potential. But what we don't realize we're actually doing when we do that, is we're actually inoculating them against a sensitivity to their own need for God. See, there's a, there's a place for a healthy view of self, but one of the things that, that, we, that we fall so short is when we, we make kids and other people fail to see their need for God. And it's a, it's a false doctrine. And let me tell you why. Because self-esteem is based on a presupposition that we are good people. But the reality of the Bible says we are sinful and that we are all in need of repentance and turning to God and through Christ in faith. And that is the only way that a person can obtain salvation is when they recognize their need for God. Self-esteem, in so many ways, is just the sanctification of human pride. we've, We've come to believe that that's a great thing to do, but in reality, we're just reinforcing human pride. To come to faith in Jesus, you must see yourself as sinful. You must see yourself worthy of the judgment that is coming to you. And you must turn to him. Until that, that's ready, that happens, you're not ready to repent. And anything else is a faith that does not save. Secondly, faith that does not save has an external view of salvation. In verse 12 says, but when, the, when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. So when Philip begins to preach and they hear the truth, then all of a sudden there's a, like a spiritual awakening underneath, under this, his, his preaching. And As a result of that, all these people following Philip, now Simon has lost all of his followers. He used to be the big show in town, but now Philip's taken over. And so his attitude is, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And so 
in verse 13, it says, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. Now, now get the last part of this verse. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. You see where his focus was? It was on what all was happening. It was on the power, on the miracles. And Simon, you see, has this ulterior motive for joining the Christians because he wants to find out the source of Philip's power. And as as later is revealed, his goal ultimately is to get that power for himself. And so he's constantly amazed at this and he wants to go he wants to go back out on the road with his Simon the Great show and be uh, amazed and be uh, adored by the people once again. If you, if you think about it, Simon wanted to add to what he already had. He wanted to add to what he had mastered. He wanted to uh, add this great trick to his repertoire of tricks and increase him. And see, this was all about what he could get for himself, how he could advance his own agenda, his own ambitions, his own desires. And he saw supernatural power as a way to accomplish that. He wasn't looking at this as a way to transform his life. He wasn't looking to be different. He was looking to be more famous. And so many people are like that. They, they want Jesus for what they perceive that he can do for them. They want Jesus because they think that they can have their best life now. They want Jesus because they think he can fix my marriage or he can help me with my finances. Well, he may even make me rich. He makes me healthy. He makes me wealthy. He makes me happy. And that's the perspective that people come to Jesus with. He can make me successful. See, there's no concern for the internal. There's, there's no a sense of turning away from sin and wanting to be different and wanting to, to, to be changed in the way that I live. It's just I want to add that. No sense of surrendering and offering ourselves to God to be used of him, but we want to take God and use him to accomplish our purposes. You see, friends, faith that does not transform your life is a faith that does not save. And the the Bible tells us in in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 5 and verse 17, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. All things passed away. Behold, new things have become. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about a transformed life, a changed life. When the power of God, the Spirit of God comes upon you, there's a change that occurs. And that change inside results in fruit on the outside. It becomes the evidence of the reality of your salvation. So if you don't have a change on the inside, that is resulting in a different way of living on the outside, you have a faith that does not save. 
You have a faith that's looking for something else. And thirdly, we see that a faith that does not, faith that doesn't save it has an economic view of the Spirit. In verse 14, it says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So you get the picture here. Word gets back to Jerusalem of Philip's incredible success in Samaria. And so uh, when when they heard that the Samaritans, the people that they despised, had received the word of God and that they were actually going to be a part of the kingdom of God, they sent Peter and John down to Samaria to check this out, to see what's going on. You see, it was, it was really it was, it was kind of almost beyond the imagination that a Samaritan could be saved. And they want to have this checked out. But, but John, Peter and John, they go down because they're going to pray that they receive the Holy Spirit, just like the people in the Jerusalem church had. Now, it's really important to note that many people who teach that Christians receive the Holy Spirit after salvation rather than at the moment of salvation appeal to this passage as, a, as, a, as support. And they, they argue that this is a clear example of people who were saved, who had been baptized, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit. You see... But the problem with that is, is that it fails to understand that the book of Acts is a transitional book. The book of Acts is telling us how the gospel spread through the world. And you remember where it started? It started with the Jews. And the Jews first. And then the gospel went to Samaria, Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. When the Holy Spirit came, how did he come? He came first in, Jer- in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost when they received uh, the, the evidence of the Holy Spirit through speaking in languages and the tongues of fire falling upon the people. And then what we're going to see here is that now the Holy Spirit comes to the Samaritans and he's going to come in a similar way that he came to the church in Jerusalem. See, if, if the people... If, if the Holy Spirit had come upon them and they had received the Holy Spirit separate from the church at Jerusalem, there would have been two churches. In fact, there would probably be three churches. There would have been a Jewish church, a, a Sumerian church, and a Gentile church. But God designed one church where all people are one in Christ. And so when he come, when they, when John, James and John, or excuse me, John and Peter come down and pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit, then all of a sudden... You see, everybody recognizes that these people are receiving the same Holy Spirit that they received in Jerusalem. And they also recognize that James and John are apostles and are under their authority in the church. So what God is doing is he's actually preserving the unity of the church. And by the way, 
Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 says this. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Today, when a person believes on Jesus Christ, they receive the Holy Spirit immediately. These were times we're going to see were one-time events in history that began uh, and acknowledged the giving of the Holy Spirit to all people, all groups. And there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit because the Bible says by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body at conversion. So God is preserving the unity of the church and, and, and the apostles need to see that for themselves and they need to give first-hand account to the, Jeru- to the Jerusalem church that this was the way it was. When Peter and uh, John arrive, it says they began laying their hands on the Samaritans and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. It, it, it's a picture it's a picture. You know, today when we ordain pastors or deacons, one of the things we do, spiritual leadership lays their hands on these ordained men. It's a picture of, of unity, of acknowledgement. And this was what they were doing in that day as well. Verse 18 says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying... Give this authority to me as well so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, evidently, you know, they're seeing this incredible display of the power of the Holy Spirit just like at the day of Pentecost. And this arouses uh, Simon's interest. And he says, man, I want that. Give that to me. I'll give you money. I'll buy in. And see, he's treating uh, the, the apostles like fellow uh, sorcerers. He's going to buy their, their tricks. I want to invest. I want in. I want some of that. See, he's an economic view of the Spirit. And he, and he has this ergonomic view of the Spirit. He wants to make the Spirit work for him. And by doing this, Simon gave us the term in our in English, simony. Have you ever heard of that, simony? That's the buying and selling of offices in, in churches. Buying and selling power, as it were. And let me tell you, God has nothing for sale. Nothing. Especially not the Holy Spirit. You cannot buy the Holy Spirit. And there's certainly nothing that, what would we offer God? What would sinful people offer God in exchange for the Spirit? Salvation is a spiritual blessing that's poured out freely upon His children. Indeed, uh, Isaiah 55 and verse 1 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Yet, do you understand that there are countless thousands of people who are ignorant of that truth? That there are people who are still trying to buy their way into the kingdom of God? Do you, in this very day, in this very moment, there are people all over America who are giving their money to certain preachers and, 
and churches in an effort of uh, hopes of getting something back from God. And there are people who are not buying with, with money, but there are people who are trying to buy with their efforts and their energy and their time. There are people who come to church who think that I have come to church and therefore I got some favor with God. I got some credit that I can call upon him and, or I'll do this thing or I'll do that thing. And somehow, because I'm doing this, I get something back from God. See, that, that's, that's an economic view of the Spirit. But God calls us to humble ourselves and to submit to our, to our Spirit, to our God, and to walk in obedience to the direction of the Holy Spirit. He calls us to do what He wants us to do rather than what we want Him to do for us. And you listen, Peter is, is outraged at what he says. In verse, look at verse 20. He says, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Peter, Peter, what Peter said there has been uh, really uh, subdued and calmed by most translators. J.B. Phillips' uh, rendering conveys the actual sense of Peter's words. He says, to hell with you and your money. You should go to hell. This is absolutely wicked. That you think that you could buy the power of God with money? That you think you can obtain favor with, with God through something that you can do? Friends, works will get you the same, very same thing that Philip's effort or uh, Simon's effort to buy the Holy Spirit gets you. If you think you can come to God through your own works, in the end, God's going to say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me. And finally, a faith that does not save has an evasive view of sin. Peter follows his condemnation of Simon with a call for repentance. You see in verse 22, he says, Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven. You see, he, he challenges Simon to see his sin for the heinous thing that it is. And he's saying to him, uh, you need to see it as wickedness. And you need to turn from it. You have to repent. You have to have a change of mind and a change of heart. You have to turn from that way of thinking. Because this is absolute wickedness. Repent means that you turn from your sin. You turn to God and you trust Him. And see, he's talking about the intention of his heart. But he's saying, if possible. Because Simon is saying, or Peter is saying, I I don't think that's going to happen. I don't see it. In fact, he says in verse 23, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Gall is that which comes out of your liver. It's, it's very bitter and vile. 
And he is saying that there is coursing through your veins a toxic, bitter vileness that's called sin, that's called wickedness, that's called self-centeredness. And if you don't repent, you are going to spend all eternity in hell. He's saying I, I, if, if possible, I doubt that's going to happen because of the way you're thinking. And, and notice, he, Peter is right because, you see, Simon is not persuaded. Although he is shaken, he's afraid, he refuses to ask the Lord for forgiveness. He doesn't cry out to God. He doesn't fall in his face. Oh, God, have mercy upon me. Forgive me. You know what he says? He says in verse 24, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, that nothing of of what you have said may come upon me. Simon still isn't interested in having a change in his life, being transformed. You know what he wants? He just doesn't want the bad things to happen to his life. He just wants to get away, get away from all the these this horrible curse that Peter has pronounced upon him. So so pray for me that that won't happen. But he's not. He's not ready to repent. He's not ready to change his heart. He's not changed his mind about himself. He just says, I don't want to experience the consequences. And I tell you what, I could not tell you how many times in my years of pastoring that I have had people come to me in a crisis, their lives in a mess, brokenness in every way, people crying People begging me and saying to me, please, they will say things like, please save me, save our marriage, uh, uh, deliver me from, from these drugs, uh, help me overcome this financial mess that I've made in my life. Uh, on and on, people will say to me, like, I'm God. And then I tell you what, friend, that's, the th- that's the moment when you realize you are not God. You have no power over these things. Only God can do these things. But you see, what, and what, what happens so often in so many of these cases is that people come to me as a representative of God or to the church because they want to be free from the hurt and the pain and the difficulties that they're experiencing in their life. They want, they want to get away from the pain, but they're not really interested in changing their lives. They're not really interested in repenting of their sin and turning away from that and trusting Christ. They just want, don't, I don't want to hurt anymore. And until we really are going to get real with the inside and deal with our hearts and true repentance, we don't really get that. And, I, and here's what happens. When people begin to do right things, even if, even if their hearts haven't changed, even when they, begin to, when they begin to behave right for a while, it begins to ease the consequences in their lives. It begins to bring a help to their lives. And as the, the, the pain subsides, as things get better and sometimes change totally, then they're gone again. After the crisis... They're gone. Things have gotten better. And let me tell you, I've seen people get baptized. I've seen them get up and stand and give testimony and 
praise God and do all kinds of things and a month later be back living the life that they were living. That's a faith that does not save. And let let me ask you a question. How do you see yourself? What's your view of yourself? Do you see yourself, do you really see yourself as a sinner that's absolutely in need and dependence upon God? Or do you see yourself as a good person, upstanding, even outstanding? How do you see yourself? How do you how do you view how do you view salvation? Is it something that um, you do on the outside, or is it about the change that occurs on the inside? How do you view the Spirit of God and, and the gifts, the grace of God? Do you, do you see it as something that is to be gained, to be benefited from? Or, or, or do you see yourself as in the place of being a person who, who submits, who yields, who walks in obedience, who's filled with the Spirit and does what the, the Spirit of God wants you to do? How, how do you view the consequences that come with sin? I mean... Are you, are you simply wanting to get away from the hurt and the difficulties? Or do you really want to get away from the, the, the nature of the person that, that causes those things? That's the question. Now, see, some of you, might, you, you may be sitting here today and you may be, you know, in your heart arguing with me, saying, I don't, I don't agree with that, I don't like that. And I'll tell you that even the way you receive the message tells you something. Because how you receive these ideas, this truth from Scripture, it tells something about your salvation or the status of of your heart. Where are you? Now, I want to ask you to give yourself an evaluation, to, to look at your own life and ask the question, you know, do I have a salvation a faith that really saves? Or do I have a faith that doesn't save? That's, that's an important question. I'm not trying to make you doubt your salvation, but the Bible does tell us to examine ourselves, that we ought to evaluate our lives and see where we are. And the outward fruit is often the, the biggest evidence that God gives us of where we are spiritually. So evaluate your own life in regard to that. And listen, if you have never truly trusted Jesus Christ, you need to do that now. You need to acknowledge to him that you have sinned, that you have broken his law, that you have violated his righteousness, and that you are deserving of punishment. And you need to recognize that he, but that he loved you in spite of that so much that he would send his own son into the world to take upon himself all that vileness, all that ugliness, and suffer in your place. That's what he did for you. And if you're willing to turn 
from your sin and put your faith in what Jesus did, you know what? He will save you. He will transform you. He will give you his Holy Spirit to live and walk in you and empower you. And he will use you in his kingdom. And that's the wonderful thing that God calls us to do, to trust him, to have real salvation. Our Father, we thank you this morning.